I felt there was something lacking, you know, I felt a certain dissatisfaction, you know, it's like, all of a sudden, these things that you had worked for and hoped for, like money or fame or success in your field and your peers and in the public and things like that. And now you have a family and a wife and kids and respect and things like that. Yet there was still this um, unsatisfaction. If you got something, let it rip. I'm never gonna do this again. Everybody grapples with this idea that you're really a fraud. Like I'm alive. And that's when it clicked with me. I thought, these are not superheroes. These are just men that can do super things. This is Matt Del Negro, and you are listening to the new Stripped Down 10,000 No's. Today's episode was recorded in 2021, which is three years ago with Michael Imperioli. You know him. If you don't know The Sopranos, you've been living under a rock. Uh, he played Christopher Moltisanti, a real hothead on the show. As you're going to hear today, he could not be any different. He is super mellow, very thoughtful. He is a real artist's artist. He, you'll, We'll get into it a little bit. He's written novels. He's written screenplays. He's developed TV series. He's in a band. Caveat, at one point, he's talking about his upcoming show. I think we recorded this in the spring of 2021, and he said something about when's this coming out. I said probably in the fall, he was about to do a concert. Uh, that is now three or four years ago, so this has never happened with any others aside from this episode and Terry Winters, um, who we released about a month ago. Uh, go listen to that if, if you haven't yet. It's gotten crazy feedback. Um, both of those I did before I left LA, then we had a huge two-year pause on the show, so anyway. This is the last of them, Michael Imperioli. His honesty, his he's got a real sensitivity and a real just kind of says it like it is. And like I said, he's very thoughtful. When I met him, I came on to the show that was in 2002, I did Sopranos, and all I knew was he was Christopher. You know, he was this real hothead. And when I, when I actually met with him, he was so kind. But one day, one of my first days on set, we were shooting it, Satin Dolls in New Jersey, which was uh, the Bada Bing on the show. And he, you know, he kind of, it was like one of those things where I was like the awkward, you know, middle school kid looking for a place to sit during lunch because they had these tables lined up in the Satin Dolls, which is a strip club. And, um, you know, it was obviously closed down while we were shooting. And he kind of motioned to me to come over and sit with him and whoever he was sitting with. And it was just a really kind gesture I never forgot. Great, great guy. I tried to cut out a few of the little, you know, pauses and everything, but then I kind of pretty much kept it raw. So just so you know, if you ever want to listen to these, you could do it. If you're listening on podcast, you can always just speed up the timing of it. But I left some of the pauses to his answers and some of the kind of, you know, we're on Zoom and it's, it's not perfect, the recording. I left it in there so you could just hear the conversation as it was. Um, took out some things to make it smoother, but for the most part, that's what it was. But you can always listen faster if you're watching on YouTube. I guess you can't, unless that's a feature that I don't know about. Either way, here he is, Michael Imperioli. What we do here is go back, 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 back. The first thing that, that always comes up when I think of you is, you know, my first impressions of you were, um, you know, Goodfellas way back when, and then Sopranos were really where I knew you. And then I met you and you 
could not have been more different, particularly from Christopher than uh, it was like, it's such a spectrum between who you are and who you were playing. And um, I'm kind of curious, you know, you grew up in Brewster, you're born in Mount Vernon. What, what kind of got you into acting? Like, was it something that you started really early on? Did you know this? It looked to me from IMDb, which you never, you know, you never know if this is all true, but it looks like your first two credits were um, Lean On Me and, and Goodfellas, which is pretty, pretty big right out of the gate. Lean On Me was the first movie. Goodfellas was actually the four. I did two indies. Uh, in between very tiny parts, but um, Lean on Me was in uh, 88. We shot that. So by then I had been studying and auditioning through the trade papers and all that stuff for like five years. Um, but uh, I really started, you know, in high school, I started reading a lot of plays in my school library. But I and I had always been interested in movies, good movies, you know, like the classic 70s, especially New York movies like, you know, Dog Day Afternoon, Midnight Cowboy, particularly those two always stood out. But then also like um, Godfather and Serpico and well, Apocalypse Now is not a New York movie, but, you know, that that was a big one for me. Um, but I'll tell you. Looking back now, I'm not sure if that made me want to be an actor or I wanted to be the people in the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wanted to be the characters, exactly. I, yeah, I, you know, I, I started thinking about that recently, like watching those as a kid, because my dad turned me on to those movies when I was probably too young, really, to... Uh, I sh probably shouldn't have been watching those movies when I did. And I don't know if I wanted to be in the movie you know, it, the characters or an actor. So I guess acting was kind of the closest you could be to actually being living those lives. Um, and then I just, you know, after I finished high school, um, I was going to go to college. And then I decided to go to acting school um, to Strasbourg, you know, instead of going to college just because I felt... I kind of felt like, you know what, you only, this is like your life, you know, and like this decision is a big one. And, and really it's, I mean, back then I felt it was all or nothing, which is not really true at 17, <laughs> you know, um, but I felt that. So I was like, if you could do anything, what would it be? And I said, well, I guess it would be in this world. I kind of, I like the idea of maybe directing or producing or writing, but I had no idea how one would go about doing that. I didn't even, I don't even think I knew there was like such a thing called film school. I don't even think I knew that at the time. So, but I did hear of the actor studio in Lee Strasberg. So that was the route I, I, I chose as a teenager. When you say you were kicking around in the trade magazines for five years before you did Lean On Me, like how, how did, did that start at 17 and you didn't do that film until you were like in your early 20s? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so started... Goodfellas. So you were in your twenties in Goodfellas. You looked. It's funny. You looked so young. But you know, I yeah. would have thought you were younger than that. 
But no, I was 23 when we shot Goodfellas. So I'd already been studying and I was still in class at that time. So I had been studying for six years at that time and auditioning. You know, I was very deluded, which I think is necessary if you want to be an actor. I think you have to be really deluded about your talent and worth and your chances. Because if you're not, you, you know, um, there's so much rejection, especially in the beginning. You know, it's hard to survive that without being kind of, kind of, yeah. you know, <laughs> really. I'm, I, I'm laughing because I feel the same way. Like some of the, and you do, you have to be, you got to be crazy in, in some, in some there's some part of you that's just a little bit nuts to to make that turn into reality because the chances are so crazy. And deluded thinking as soon as they see me, they'll know, which was not the case. They started seeing me and they didn't know and they didn't hire me. Um, I thought I'd start studying acting and in three months I'd be on TV or in the movies or something like that. And that didn't happen. You know, it was four years of the trade papers and hearing about auditions till I got a play which didn't even pay uh, off, off, off Broadway. But then I got fired for, I was the lead, Kess's lead and I got fired after opening weekend because I didn't really know how to um, take direction. Um, I had just been working in acting class and I had no idea on how to project in a theater and how to, you know, um, my acting school was all about truth basically you know and creating reality and stuff and it was all very intimate there was no concerns about being theatrical you know so i got i started doing this you know it was like a, you know it was like an actor studio exercise and they, they were just the director and writer were just flipping out because <laughs> you know they were like it's got to speed up and you got to be louder and i was just and i thought they were idiots so i didn't listen to them and um they fired me for good reason you know yeah but Dan Grimaldi was in that play, and he played my father. Really? And Patsy. when I got yeah. to Strasbourg at 17, John Ventimiglia was in my class. I know John since I'm 17 years old. We became friends very quickly. Oh, man, what a great guy. I haven't seen yeah. him in years. When, when you get Goodfellas, well, even when you get Lean on Me, I mean, those are those are pretty big. Do you all of a sudden, um, you know, how many days, I don't even know how many days of work that would have been on Goodfellas, but that must have been a big deal. You're working with Scorsese. This is, you know, you're saying that you're a fan of the 70s films. It's like this, this is the king. Do you, are you aware of, oh, wow, I just, I just hit something pretty special that not everybody does. Were you aware of that or did it not really feel that way to you? Well, by then, around the time of Lean On Me, I started working with an agent. A, a, a classmate of mine, acting school classmate, had an audition for an agent. We did our scene together, and the agent started sending both of us out. So then I got Lean On Me, and then I wound up, uh, they were casting Goodfellas, which at the time was called Wise Guy, because that was the name of the book. And I read the book, and I got an audition for the casting person, which was Ellen Lewis. And I knew that Marty, it was a big deal. I mean, Martin Scorsese was one of my favorite directors. And De Niro was one of my favorite actors. So, yeah, it was a big deal. But I knew, through, through whatever, studying, I knew that uh, Scorsese liked improv. So I improvised a lot in the audition. Now, in the audition, the initial audition for the casting director, the sides were, I think all the young guys were auditioning using... Joe Pesci's characters, scenes, 
I forget which scene. So I'm reading for, I, I think I'm auditioning for that part. I didn't know Joe Pesci was cast. I didn't, I, all I knew was De Niro was in it. So uh, I thought I was, and in the book, the character of Tommy was like in his early 20s. I see your figure. Okay, I'm going in for Tommy. I, I thought I'm auditioning for that part. So I do the audition. She really liked it. And then my agent calls and says, they want, uh, they want you to come back and audition for Marty, which was a huge deal for me. I mean, that was like gigantic, you know. I saw Raging Bull in the movie theaters when it came out when I was 14, and it really was, you know, one of those life-changing experiences. You know, I, I'd never seen anything like that. So this was a big deal. And, and like I said, I knew he liked improv, so I prepared a lot of, you know, places to go and improv, and he was wonderful. And I could tell he liked what I did. Then they call and say, you, you, they want you in a movie, you got the part of Spider, which is in, it is in the book, but it's a tiny thing. I'm like, really? I was kind of disappointed. I thought yeah. I was auditioning for the lead, you know? <laughs> like I said, delusion, delusion, that's what you're under. So I'm like, all right, well, this is cool, you know, and um, actually, you know, I'm not sure if De Niro was cast. Then I heard he was cast, and then I heard I was going to be in the scene with him after I got cast, and then it was a big deal, you know. Much more than Joe Pesci at the time. I mean, he was he had done Raging Bull and Easy Money and, and some movies, but he wasn't a big deal to me at the time, to be honest. I mean, until after Goodfellas, really. Yeah. He really blew up after Goodfellas. But De Niro and Scorsese, to me, I liken it to um, being called up from the minor leagues to go to the play with the Yankees in the World Series. That's what it was really like. Yeah, well, and that's I, what I would have thought, and that's what I'm wondering. Were you even aware of how? I mean, it was yeah. it's just huge, yeah. Absolutely. It was two days. We shot one scene one day, one scene the next day. And, um, you know, it was wonderful. You know, Marty from the moment I got there, made me feel like I belonged there. And I was an actor um, on the same par as everybody else there. And he wanted me to make choices and to be creative and gave me a lot of respect and responsibility, as did the other actors. We shot two days in a row. And then I went home and I was like, this was amazing. You know, it was really an incredible experience, whether or not it's going to stay in the movie, whether or not, you know, and you don't know what the scenes are going to be, because by then I had done a couple of movies and then I had seen them and everything gets cut up and you don't know what um, and then a year later they we went, I went to a cast and crew screening and I was kind of surprised how kind of prominent those scenes were how central they were to the story they were kind of right in the middle of the movie and were a big turning point in the film yeah did that kind of publicly did that put you on the map way more than you were like w w was it because I had this thing where it was like, it, it took me like five years to when, maybe more than five years when someone would ask, what do you do just to say I'm an actor? Because there were so many things, there, there were so many, you know, well, I'm bartending, I'm, I'm working, I'm waiting. And then all of a sudden for me, it was Sopranos all of a sudden without me prompting someone, they would say, oh yeah, you're cousin Brian. Was that, was Spider that for you? Or, or was there something before that or? No, it was because, uh... Number one, in the industry, everybody went to see that. Everybody saw the movie. So now you can go to a, a casting person or a, dire a director or something and say, I, I was in Goodfellas and I was at, so everybody knew that. What happened was Goodfellas was shot in 89. In 90, they started screening it and it was released. But Spike Lee was friends with Marty. So he saw a screening 
at the time he was casting Jungle Fever. So a lot of us, like Frank Vincent, myself, Debbie Mazar, several other actors who were in Goodfellas wound up in Jungle Fever. And so you can point to that publicly, yeah, that as well, you know, because that was such a big movie. So, yeah. Um, but I was still working in, uh, in and out of restaurants and bars for another couple of years. Yeah, even while you're working with Spike, that's the other thing. Is like, so you go Scorsese, and then you go Spike Lee, and you collaborated with him a lot. I mean, I don't know how many films you did. Then you you wrote Summer of Sam, which he directed. Yeah. I mean, you. So were you aware of obviously Scorsese? You knew, and then when you met Spike, was it like, oh my God, now I'm I'm with the big hitters? How how much did that? Do you feel? help your just your sense of self and your your uh confidence and just working with collaborators like that huge because um i saw she's got to have it i think i saw it on video around 87 or something and i loved it there was an energy to it when do the right thing came out it opened on a friday like most movies and i went to see it in the village and there was a lot of um controversy around that. a lot of people were worried there were going to be riots and race racial tension all this stuff and i remember seeing it in the village on greenwich avenue there was that theater there and there was a lot of tension in the theater you know because no one had seen the movie yet it was full packed house mixed audience you know black and white and, you know latino whoever you know very mixed and when the movie was over, I felt we were more kind of together than we were before we went in. And that knocked me out. You know, I walked out of the theater going, this is very powerful, you know, and to, to be able to kind of put everybody on a similar wavelength, you know, the power of cinema that way. So I was, um, I really wanted to work with Spike after that. And I think it, he did Mo Better Blues after that and then Jungle Fever. So that was a really big deal to work with him, you know, without a doubt. And then I met... Uh, I worked with John Turturro on that movie, which was a really big deal because I, I had admired him already. And Wesley Snipes and, and Annabella Shura, of course, um, who I had known her work from True Love. So these were the people I wanted to be working with. I actually even rehearsed one day with Anthony Quinn, me, Frank Vincent, and Anthony Quinn. Anthony Quinn played John Turturro's dad, and Spike likes to rehearse. And Turturro wasn't available, so he asked me to fill in for John in the rehearsal. So I got to rehearse with Anthony Quinn, me and Frank Vincent. It was incredible. I mean, that was, you know, this was this is what I felt uh, I had always wanted to do. Um, and what would you say was the the difference in, I know I've heard Scorsese is so collaborative. Was Spike, you say he liked to rehearse. What Was there a different, what was his style on set? Very similar. Very yeah. much wants the actor to bring bring themselves to it. Wants the actor to be creative, create, improv, all that stuff. Very similar. Very similar. They, you know, the, the, the thing is, the two of them make you feel like you belong there. And, like, they want your input. You're not just, like, a, you know, a set piece for them to kind of manipulate. And the downside is, having those experiences early on, is that you, you learn very quickly that, it's not always like that. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking as as we're as we're talking. I'm going, man, this is you know ten thousand no's. It sounds pretty good so far, but I would imagine there's got to be a little bit of that like coming down to earth after working with guys like that. And and there's was there a period like that for you where you you felt like. God, this is just like I don't even I don't even know what else to want. I'm kind of doing it. I'm working with the people I want to. And then was there any period of where you 
kind of came back down to earth and it felt like, uh, where did it all go? Or did you never kind of have that yeah, dip? Very recently. <laughs> okay. that like every year and a half or something like that. Well, I could, you know, it's funny. I could, like, I would not, uh, what's not that? No, I'm not I, joking. Serious. I, I, I get it because I, when you, when I was on your, uh, by the way, uh, congratulations on the Webby award. Uh, when I was on Talking Sopranos, I could tell from the way you asked me questions, I wouldn't have thought that someone with your career necessarily would be able, you, you kind of, I got insight into you by the way you asked me about my career. I thought, huh, interesting. You know, Imperioli, um, it doesn't matter. And, and I've kind of found that out through interviewing a bunch of people on this show. Like, it doesn't matter. We all go through it. And I think that's the common bond. And maybe the misperception is that like, oh, you've, you've made it like, oh, you know, look at this guy. He's worked with the best. He's worked on the best show in history. It's like, he's got no problems. Well, yeah, he's human and, and he's in a crazy business. So that I'm not shocked to hear it. I mean, I'm kind of curious about that little period between, I guess it's in the nineties somewhere, maybe between those films and Sopranos. I don't know if there was a dip or even while you're doing those films in between working, do you feel that? I was basically made my living between say like Jungle Fever and The Sopranos, which was about seven years, eight years, about eight years. I made, basically made my living. I bartended for about two years and then I made a living doing independent movies, mostly. A couple of Hollywood movies, not many, but mostly independent movies in New York. I was also doing a lot of theater. I was producing theater, directing theater, acting in, in off-off-Broadway theater, which I started doing in my early, I started producing theater in my early 20s. Um, I started writing, but I didn't really finish anything till Summer Sam, which was when I was like 31 or something like that. But I wrote throughout my 20s. So I, I always, I started a theater company in my early 20s and then built a theater later on after Sopranos. But so I, I, I always, um, I, I it was never about waiting around for, you know, Hollywood to ring, you know, to call. So I, I was always about creating anyway. But there's jobs, you know, there, there's jobs that I've taken for the money because I needed it. You know, I needed to pay the rent. I did one job because I needed headshots, you know, back in the day. I've taken a lot of jobs uh, raising a family and other you know, people in my family and, and close to my family, I've put people through school from jobs that I've had and stuff like that. And I, I have no problem with that. But I do find when when you're on a job and it's just not good, yeah. it's just is. You know, when the writing's not good or the other actors aren't that good, and you know. Listen, there's a lot of junk in the movies and TV. There's a lot of mediocre people working in TV. A lot of people get by on because they have pretty faces and they're not very skilled, especially on network TV. There's a lot of mediocrity. It's very, I think, a lot less just great stuff, which is why I go back and forth between more mainstream stuff and more indie stuff and then more underground stuff. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the theater company because I know you guys, uh, you know, pretty prolific and, and it's something that, I feel like listeners of this show need to hear. You just said it, like there wasn't a lot of sitting around. You just wanted to create. Would you say um, those are some of the, you know, I'm coming in, obviously asking you about the bling of, of Scorsese and Spike Lee, but would you say that some of those those plays that you put on with people that you love were 
some of the best creative experiences you've had? Yeah, we started a company uh, that came out of my class in Strasbourg, a guy named Tom Gilroy, who now is the filmmaker. And he directed, I mean, a couple of us, John Ventimiglia and a couple other actors, we gravitated toward each other. And we started meeting once a week outside of, of class, just doing like improv and stuff like that. And then Tom started doing performance art. Uh, the first thing he did was like a kind of Spalding Grayish monologue piece with a slideshow. And it was him and Michael Stipe. They did side by side. And I ran the projector for Michael Stipe's things. Tom ran his own thing. We did it at PS122. That was the first production I was involved in. And then we formed this company and Tom wanted to direct Incident of Vichy, which was an Arthur Miller play. This is 1988. And I, I said, I'll produce it. And Miller was, is at the, was very particular about giving out the rights. We didn't have any money. And he wrote a letter to Miller why this play was important at that time in the late 80s. It was the, you know, Reagan or Bush one or I forget, maybe Bush one, why it was important and still important and needed to be done. And he gave us the rights to do it for like nothing. And that was the first. And then after that, Tom started writing. Tom Gilroy started writing and I started directing and, you know, whatever, beg, borrow and steal to get the money to, and to, to rent the theater, which was always the big expense. And yeah, when the inmates run the asylum, it's always the most fun for me. Fast forward to like 2003, my wife and I decided to build a theater, different situation altogether and not make it a company, but just it was more we called it a benevolent dictatorship. It was me and Victoria running the show. It kind of became a company by default because there were people that we gravitated toward, but we made it about the play. We decided to make it only about new plays that had not been done before. Find the play we love and that turns us on and then build the the company for that play around it. Best director, best actors and all that stuff. And we did that from, we had about 12 world premieres. Kind of broke some new directors and some actors and stuff and, and a couple of writers who have gone on to work in television and film and stuff like that. And, and then when the economy tanked, we lost half our funding. This is not for profit. We tried to float it with our own money and that didn't work so well, so. Yeah. Yeah, that was, you know, that's the most exciting stuff for me. I, I always like putting people together, you know? Yeah, similar deal. The, some of the things that I've done that have not really seen the light of day were some of the best experiences that I've had working with people that I love and or working on something for the right reasons. Take us to, just because I, I can't not talk to you about it, but I, I, I kind of want to, I want to get to your music. I want to get to Buddhism. Um, and I know I don't want to keep you uh, for four days, but I also want to just touch on Sopranos and, and just ask you what that was. You know, a lot of I know a lot of you have said that we're in the original, you know, in, in the pilot. We're not necessarily didn't know what the public would think of it. And, you know, you're working on a pilot. You think it's great writing, but you have no idea. You can't see ahead of what it's going to become. Was that what what uh, what? Where is that in your kind of space of life as you look back on it? Um, I'm guessing there's some stability financially maybe with that period, but the work and the people. Yeah. Well, I'll, that be honest, weigh in? I, I'll be totally honest with you. When I first read the pilot, I didn't know that. I didn't think it was great writing. I thought it was good writing. Um, I was not like, I didn't read that pilot and go, this is the greatest TV thing I've ever read and I have to be in this. I liked it. I'll be totally honest. I didn't know who David was. I had no idea who he was. I wasn't sure if it was a spoof. 
if it was a straight up comedy, there was some darkness in there, but it was a lot of humor and I wasn't sure. I'd never done a series, you know, I had only done movies, plays, a couple of guest spots. So my experience is you read a script, you decide if you want to do it or not. This is you read one script, you decide if you want to do a hundred or not, yeah. maybe. So I really didn't know what I did like were the people that started getting cast, a lot of whom I knew like Edie, who I knew, and Sirico, and Jenny Pastor, and Dominic Canesio, I, I had all known, R Lorraine, I knew a little bit. I didn't know Jim, but I, I had seen him in a play. I knew of his work. He was, I, I liked his work. So, you know, it seemed like a good gig. When Then when we shot the pilot and we all worked together, it was a great experience, and I really loved it, and I really hoped it worked. When I really got the sense of it was when we came back and shot the rest of season one and script after script kept getting better and more intricate and more complicated, more complex, dark and light and all the shadings. And I was like, whoa, this is great. That's when I knew it was great. It wasn't just from the pilot. And for me, it was exactly what I wanted to do at the time. You know, as an actor who was in New York, it was edgy. There was something fresh about it. It was for cable. It was TV, but it was breaking all the rules. It was a really complicated character who was very interesting. And I was working with people I really liked. And I fell in love with the show that first season. And I wrote a spec script. And then I started writing for the show. So that The Sopranos was exactly what I wanted to do at the time. What would you say working with Jim was, you know, you've worked with the greatest. What was it, in your opinion, that made him so great was a melding melding of you know that character with him was it his was there something that you would describe as like that that made you know that... it's one of those moments when a great actor meets a great role and it's a great actor meeting a great role in a great show that was very kind of the timing of that show is kind of perfect because people were you know, network TV had gotten stale. So it was the beginning of the revolution of TV. Now TV is very different with streaming and premium cable and the greatest writers and directors and actors are all gravitating towards that. That was the beginning of all that. So it was a perfect storm. The show, the climate of television, Jim's talent and the role of Tony Soprano, yeah. you know? Listen, if you're, you could be a great actor. If you don't get those great roles, you're not going to be great. You're just not. Think I, of the best actors when, when they do shitty movies. They're not stuff you're going to want to see again. They're just not. The greatest actors, you know, you think of Brando, you think of, you know, Godfather, Apocalypse Now, Last Tango, Streetcar Named Desire, On the Waterfront. Those are all great movies. There's, a, there's 40 other movies that, that don't come to mind immediately because they're kind of mediocre, you know? Yeah, that's what's kind of, you know, mind-blowing about that documentary a couple of years ago on Brando. Um, I, I can't remember the the name of it, where they piece together all of these different, it, it's almost as though he's alive and narrating it, but yeah. they go through and you forget like these, there's a whole period of some really bad. And films. he'd be the first to say that. And it, and yeah. he has, he has, he yeah, said, he says it. In that. Yeah. And you realize that, yeah, you're, you're, you've got to be good, but then you're only as good as your collaborators because, you know, it's, especially yeah. as the actor, you're just this little sliver of the pie and the interesting thing with jim is and 
it's funny because the in the show Tony's like a father figure for Christopher, but J- Jim and I were a lot closer in age than the characters are supposed to be. We're we were only I think we're only four four or five years apart. And when we did the pilot, I had already had two kids and was had been married for a while, and he was still single, I think. So, and we were kind of similar places in our careers. We had done some good stuff. People in the industry knew us. People in the public kind of knew us. So, you know, um, we were much more peers and friends than like he was like, you know, sometimes people think he was like this mentor to me who taught me things and I asked for advice. It wasn't like that at all. We were much more just like pals. That's the sense I got from from working with you guys that you were kind of, that's a sense actually, that's a good point you bring up. I actually think that's what made that show so special is that everybody was it was like a great collection of untapped talent that had not fully been used as much as they could have been up until that point so it it was like a great fielding of a team you know yeah some reporter once said the sopranos has the deepest bench of any show they've ever seen that's what that's what it was like it was like you got it's like the greatest it's, I mean, Edie, same thing. And, and it just, everybody, Drea, I mean, like, I, I thought the two of you, you and Drea together, and then Edie and Jim together, it's just, it was like unbelievable over and over and over again. So Buddhism, when did that come into your life? Was that because, I, you know, I, I didn't really know that you were practicing Buddhism until pretty recently but I think it's been for a, a long time. How did that come about? Like, what what was your your upbringing? Were you Roman Catholic? I'm kind of assuming, uh, maybe wrongly. Yeah, but that has nothing to do with. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. With... I'm saying I'm just saying like you you know you're maybe brought up uh, you know completely different, but then you get older. What was it that drew you to Buddhism? And, and, yeah. and... I mean, I was brought up Roman Catholic, but in some ways. Uh, it was more of a cultural thing really yeah. than a spiritual thing. Although my dad is very spiritual and he's Roman Catholic. Um, uh, I got into Buddhism in 2007, which coincidentally is the same year The Sopranos finished. Um, but before then I, I was kind of around 2002, three, I started uh, investigating a lot of different spiritual paths and a lot of strange ones too. Um, that I won't necessarily go into, um, just because I felt I felt there was something lacking. You know, I felt a certain dissatisfaction. You know, it's like all of a sudden these things that you had worked for and hoped for, like money or fame or success in your field and your peers and in the public and things like that. And now you have a family and a wife and kids and respect and things like that. Yet there was still this. Um, unsatisfaction so i started investigating different spiritual paths and came up came you know uh my wife and i went to a teaching of a tibetan buddhist teacher in 2007 and kind of it kind of snowballed from there because i i would investigate a spiritual path sometimes you'd read a book even from great minds you know like krishnamurti who made a big impression on me but you'd i'd read the book and then the book would be over and there was no practice you know there was no it would all make sense to me. Even a good philosophy book would make sense to me. But then when the book is done, it's like you're left to your own devices again. And it wasn't until finding Buddhism where there's a, you know, a specific methods, 
you know, on dealing with the self and the dealing with the mind and how the how the mind is what you really need to work with in your interactions with other human beings and with yourself and with the world and and how working with the mind can start to change things it's funny out of all the stuff that we we've talked about that's a, it's the most interesting in, in a way to me is like that you got to this it makes such sense to me you got to this kind of mountaintop within this industry and it's like yeah this is great i mean you know you sound very appreciative of it and very grateful for that experience but yeah what what else what yeah what else is out there and and what what what's been the biggest what's kind of been the biggest thing that's come into your life as a as a change as as a result of this not just reading about it but the practice i mean do you feel that it has made you more present in your in like even in your art and just with your family and everything just just by focusing on it sure is it something yeah. that more present um uh you know kind of a bigger perspective on what's important and um a little bit more ability to con a little bit more ability to conduct yourself the way you really want to conduct yourself and not be always at the victim uh, at the whim of your emotions all the time you know um you know i i i'll be on i'll be really honest and it's very embarrassing to say this but you know as a, as a young guy as an actor i really wanted to be famous i thought that would be the most wonderful thing in the world even more than being you know making money as much as working as an actor i really thought fame would be kind of amazing and there are some, a lot of good things about it without a doubt because it helped you get more work you can actually you know um you get invited to cool places you meet cool people you can actually raise help raise money for causes and raise awareness for certain things and things like that but i wanted it more on a, a more shallow level than that and uh and then it kind of comes and you're like <laughs> you know it's like the wizard of oz it's just that little guy behind the kind of curtains it's like oh this is what it is okay and then you have to figure out all right well this is what you, you have now you can either make that kind of work for yourself and for other things that you're, you 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 believe in you're passionate about or you can you know pursue it more just because you think more of it's going to be better or you can let it really destroy you because it can really distort uh, your percent, your sense of self and ego and things like that. Yeah, I would imagine when you get to, you know, particularly when you're in the height of that show and that show that, you know, you think about Sopranos, it's kind of lived on to they're saying it's the most I think it's the most streamed it's show. Yeah, like they're saying during the pandemic, it was the Yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> I would imagine that that sets up a situation where you have to have a bit of a a barrier a bit of a wall that you have to put around you and how do you kind of uh, you know manage in the world protecting yourself and your family and yet also being present with people um i think you just have to you know realize that people project all kinds of things on you you know what I mean? And it's okay. You know, you, you know, it used to be like, ah, you know, you don't know who I am. Of course they don't know who you are. 
They see you on TV. Some people think you're that guy on TV. Some people think you're this an actor or whatever. Some people hate you because they've read things about you or they hate your politics or they hate things that you believe in. And because you, you know, you're in the public eye, they're going to project a lot of things on you. And that's okay. You don't have to kind of fight against it or just, you know, you can do your thing and just kind of like have an ease about it. And it's like, I mean, when I was young and I would see people who were famous, it was a pretty weird thing and very kind of intense, you know, to see some, especially if you admired them at all. It's a very, you know, for me, it was, I remember when I was 17, I, I waited outside the Booth Theater to see Al Pacino, you know, when he was doing American Buffalo. And it was like, yeah, being Al Pacino in person was like kind of crazy. Yeah. So I, I kind of get that. And so, sometimes it's just people don't really give a shit either. And that's OK, too. I think with some time and experience, it's it's like you figure out ways to kind of maximize the positive of it, because sometimes it makes people very happy to see somebody that they've seen on TV or they like. You can kind of uh, if it's a pleasant exchange, uh, it can really be, you know, make somebody happy, at least temporarily. Yeah. Do you feel that you're, does it, um, writing seems to be a big thing for you now. I, I think you have something that you're working at. Are you writing and acting in a series for HBO that's coming out? Or I'm developing, I... I'm writing it now with Alec Berg, who, who's the showrunner from Barry and, and also wrote on uh, Kirby Enthusiasm, Seinfeld and stuff. So we're, we're writing it together right now. We're in the writing. Oh. Writing. Uh, very envious. I've seen him in those, you know, uh, inside the episodes of Barry, uh, he and Bill Hader talking about, you know, how they would approach the, the character. And he seems like a really smart guy. And, and that shows great. funny yeah. and smart. And I'm enjoying working with him a lot. We're still in the, you know, hopefully we'll um, get to shoot the pilot, uh, you know, when we get it done. But we're, we're writing. Well, so is cool. the is the writing process? Do you find that these days to be uh, as where does that stack up against your acting, writing and acting in terms of enjoyment, or just does it depend on a case by case basis? Well, I started writing fiction. Um, well, I I wrote fiction when I was younger over the years, but really, you know, I I wrote a, a novel that got published in twenty eighteen. I started writing it in twenty thirteen. Um, Really, as a way, I, I around that time, there was a couple of projects that I was working as a writer. I had a couple of deals that fell through, and I, I just had a lot of trouble working with executives, network and studio executives, to the point where I was like, I just want to do something. I don't want anybody to fucking interfere with it. So I wrote this novel. You know, the only other person I had to work with was, was the publisher and editor were, were very independent uh, Akashic books. So they really let me do what I wanted to do with it. And it was a great experience. It was very hard, but just like, that's it. There's no collaboration. It's just me. I needed that at the time, you know. So um, in addition to the pilot, I'm also writing a second novel. And, and yeah, it's very, very hard, but I love it. I love it because it's there's no... There's no one saying, well, it's got to kind of be that. And it's got, you know, maybe if you go that, you know, it's just like me and my imagination and just letting it run rampant. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, the ex yeah. I had the same experience with the book where it was like, okay, it's on you. Do yeah. it or don't do it, but just get it done. <laughs> gotta, yeah. Yeah. There's something nice about it. Um, and, and then I got to ask you also before I let you go, music, I... I didn't realize, I mean, your taste, first of all, your taste in artists and, and 
poets and musicians is it seems so vast and deep that it's intimidating because I'll, you know, on Instagram, follow you and, and see. And so, and there are many people I know who you're talking about. And then there are a lot of people that I'm like, I don't know who that is. I feel like I should, I need to be reading more, but what music seems like a re it runs really deep with you. Are you yeah. a guitar player? Are you, you, how, yeah. where is that? Have you ever performed? Have you had a band? Um, well, you know, speaking to artists in general, they, they've been guiding forces through my life, you know, since I'm a, pretty much since in my teenagers. So, so, and, and that's, oh, that's never changed, you know, um, be it writers, painters, you know, poets, musicians, and especially music uh, has been, they've been, you know, really guiding forces in my life. But I started playing music. Um, uh, around the same time I started acting, you know, I played in a no wave band. No wave was a was a movement that was kind of after post punk. That was a it was mostly kind of very stripped down punk version of kind of like post punk new wave, but like more edgy and more noisy. Uh, in in the in the mid eighties, a couple of years, we had only one concert, which was an Earth Day benefit we played, and then I sang in a band for a little while and wrote some material. We never performed, although there are demos that I'm in touch with uh, one of the guys in the band who has the demos that I've heard. Uh, and we, it, they went on, they replaced me with someone else because I, I started getting really busy and I had to leave the country. So I, it was just not good timing. And they went on to be Wild Carnations who still perform and put out records. And kept playing, but just on my own. And then in 2005, I really missed it. So I put together a band with two guys and we're still together. We put out our first record, although we recorded a few years ago, we put it out this summer. And because of Instagram and my musical posts, the, the record started getting a lot of attention. And now um, we just played a benefit, live stream benefit for Coney Island, USA. And we have our first concert. It'll be announced. When is this going to air? In, in the fall, probably. I'm taking a pause on we'll it. We'll have so. our first concert in August. Live concert in New York City, and then we're going to we're playing a music festival in Seattle, and uh, probably a couple other gigs. Now that the records out, we're starting to get some offers. But we I've been playing with these guys for uh, uh, 15 years now. Yeah, that's really cool. I play and guitar and sing, and uh, it's a trio. It's a bass player who also sings and a drummer. Yeah, I'm sure it's got to have a, the connection to the theater roots of just being there, right there with an audience, and also even, I guess, in the studio, just that that connection. Music, I, you know, I'm a bit of a hack, but I'll I play a little piano, a little guitar, and sing a little, and it is that that's the fun of of being, you know up there live and i've never played with a band i'm not that i don't think i'm that advanced i kind of get up in bars and do it but i would imagine that you get some kind of fix from the live aspect yeah the creativity i mean now more than ever i mean the uh, being on instagram and speaking to what you just mentioned about it uh all these interests of mine were always there, but they were very compartmentalized. And some people knew this or that or this, but Instagram kind of has a lot of people who are into what I do or the Sopranos or something. It's kind of linked all these things together. And 
they all have certain similar thematics. I mean, the stuff that I do independently, especially whether it be a theater or novel music, there's thematics and, and stylistic things that are all kind of connected. If that makes sense. Yeah, what it, it makes total sense. What is that? What is that thing? That common bond? That what is the itch that you're scratching? Because I do, I I agree with you. You got like a the all of those different. It's like a kaleidoscope, but I yeah. feel like there's something underneath them, and I don't know what is it. The is it the the connection to, um, just humanity? Is that what it is? Is it probably? Some, I mean, I, I mean, it's like, uh, I don't know if it's something I can put into. Um, yeah, there's, I think for me, there's something about, uh, there's a great quote by Ralph Ellison, you know, who wrote Invisible Man, one of the great American books of the 20th century. It said, the individual is a minority. Maybe that's the connection. The collective, yeah. It's let me ask you three questions because I want to let I don't want to hold you over here. Um, the, you've kind of answered them a little bit, but uh, the word "no" means what to you in the context of you know career <laughs> and all of that? I don't want to make sure I got that right. The individual is a minority. That is correct. Um, the word no, you know, uh, listen, if it's if it's in reaction to something you really believe in very strongly, then you have to ignore it. You know what I mean? And it's like you also have to ignore people's um, opinions. This band, the band I'm in now, we first started, we had our first concert in 2006. So it was still an, a lot of, I think people are, uh, are kind of getting it more now. Then it was still like, oh, he's on The Sopranos, now he's doing it. They kind of think like, I'm on The Sopranos, now I'm deciding to play music, to try music or something like that. All these things I've been doing I, the whole time, I mean, uh, since I started, you know, they're not, um, they're not just new things that you're, you know, dabbling into or something like that. Um, but uh, if someone says, no, it's something you really believe in, and you got to ignore it. And at the end, it's just people's people can have it's just opinions. That's why I would get frust so frustrated with certain uh, some of these projects that I was trying to get off the ground, especially in television. It's like, you know, these network people giving you your notes and stuff. And it's like, well, I don't really agree. I don't agree with your opinion or your aesthetic. You know, it's like, I think my aesthetic is better than yours. So why would I listen to yours then? So so I'm making a decision to make my thing less good in my opinion, because I think your idea is not as good. So you know what I mean? It's like, you're going to listen to that. I walked away from a deal with a network, you know, they, they, they buy this it was a show we I was working on another writer it was about, it's kind of a Cain and Abel story set in the eighties in the art world and the downtown, the beginning of kind of, uh, you know, the art scene in the eighties and stuff like that. They buy this thing. Then right now we're going to write it. And th they're saying, well, we think it's too um, male centric. I was like, you bought a show about two brothers. <laughs> it's too male uh, well, we know where our, what our audience is. 
our audience wants this and wants that. It's like, well, if you knew what your audience wanted, you'd have nothing but hits. And that's not the case, is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This idea. And they said, well, that's taking a big risk. I said, it's all taking a big risk. Every time you do something, it's a big risk. And then it was like, you know what? This isn't going to work. And I walked away from it because I didn't know at the time how to give them what they need and still satisfy myself, which is a skill. That's why I got fired from my first play, because I didn't know how to give the director what he was asking for and still satisfy my own uh, creative demands or creative aspirations and stuff like that. And you learn that. Yeah. That's a skill, you know. Now it's kind of second nature. But in the beginning, it was very hard. Yeah, that's that's great, though. You gave out the no walking away from them because, yeah. Network notes. I, oh, and I, I knew it was going to suck if we were going to even if it was going to see the light of day, it would wind up sucking by the end. You know what I mean? Which is like, that's not what it's not why I'm doing this. Yeah. You no, know? some some things they are what they are. Right. You get the part. You accept that for what it is, but something when it's personal. Then you have to, you know, you want to protect it a little more. Yeah. It's your name on it. Yeah. You're the creator. Your name, or you just you you want it to 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 see the light light of day the way it's supposed to. It's important to you, you know. Not yeah. even the, my name. It's it's important that this message or whatever it is, this story is told this way. That's why you're writing it. It's not just to get a deal, right? No, I mean at least for certain things. I no I. Couldn't agree more, and I I love that you walked away. Is uh, you know that's not always easy. Um, no, it's not easy. Uh, any any uh, life philosophy or phrase that you you kind of lean on when things fall apart? Um, you know, I try not to take it too. You know, I learned um. Before, right before I became a Buddhist, right? Um, when we had the theater, somebody put a bomb on the theater in 2007 in the fall, a pipe bomb. And uh, late at night, in the middle of the night, nobody got hurt, thank God, but there was, there was a lot of damage. And it was 2007 or six. I wake up, right? It's Labor Day, the day after Labor Day, right? I wake up in the morning. My father-in-law calls me and says, turn on the TV. I turn on the TV and I see me walking through the theater and then it cuts to live crime scene tape. There's an explosion in front of the, and I think I'm dreaming. I'm like, I'm going to wake up from this. And then the day just gets weirder. Then there's a press conference. Mayor Bloomberg gives a press conference about the bombing and that it's not, and I don't think it's terrorism, although Homeland Security is looking into it. Then we get in the cab, we go to theater. I, you know, uh, start have to you know kind of you know they they want to see if if it's meant for me if 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 I'm hiding something if it was you know they had to do an investigation and I wasn't sure it was somebody targeting me my kids were about to go back to school because it was the fall there was prep you know reporters outside my house it was horrible and I was really struggling and I, somebody I knew gave me the number of a, of a Tibetan Buddhist teacher and I told him what was going on he said you know there's nothing I can do really to change your situation but just remember this everything changes and he says that's probably not going to give you much help right now 
But remember that everything changes, you know, and it didn't give me that much help now. But looking back on it, I, it's something that I think about a lot because, you know, it didn't, nothing bad did happen after that. Nothing happened to my kids after that. I wouldn't, nobody came and tried to kill me. And, you know, we fixed the, the window and we went on and did, the, did our plays. They never figured out what, what it was or if, it, if they even knew what the building was or that I was involved with it. Uh, and like a lot of things in the present, sometimes they seem like the worst thing that can happen and everything's difficult. And then a year later, you're like, you know, that I was so worried about that thing. And now I don't even think about it. Everything changes. Impermanence. It's one of the big tenets of Buddhism, the law of impermanence. Everything's impermanent, even this planet. Right. Eventually, this is going to, you know, whatever, be consumed by the sun or the, and then the sun will explode and whatever. You know what I mean? Everything's impermanent. I love that. Love that. La last one, promise. If you could give your younger self advice, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? <laughs> Probably not to worry so much. You know, I don't know what age it would be. Maybe, you know, you know, you really start worrying when you have kids. You know, I mean, that's when you really start worrying because now the, these babies are, you know, infants are completely dependent on you, these other human beings. And you're, you know, you, I, I didn't know what worrying was till I had kids. And you worry about all these things. And, you know, looking back, it was like most of my worries were kind of unfounded. You know what I mean? They were neurosis and they were neurotic and they were just, you know, not maybe I'd look back around then in 30, 31. Don't worry so much. Well, Michael, um, thank you for doing this. Thanks for uh, I, I kept you an hour. I apologize. I told you I wouldn't. And um, I, I you're 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 a good man. I told you this on your show. But uh, when I came on the set of Sopranos and I was pretty you know, that was a pretty big stage to be on and, and uh, intimidating. And you could not have been cooler, more welcoming and, and just like more understated than you were. And uh, so very much appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on the show. And never let know. Steve forget that because he, you know, he, yeah, he had a hard time. He did not want to admit that. <laughs> he paints me as some, you know, high-hatting egomaniac and stuff like that but that was not my experience he by the way he was awesome he came on Ten Thousand Nose, and he was hysterical he had me laughing he's a, he's a good dude um thank you so much man all right I, man i really appreciate it and right, uh good luck with the show and uh hopefully i'll see you when i'm in new york all right you all take right. care okay bye Thanks for listening. Really appreciate you coming over here or watching this on YouTube, however you got to me. Just want to let you know a couple of our offerings. If you go to 10,000knows.com, we have the 10,000 Knows Insiders Community, which is a virtual community where I meet with artists once a week, every Monday for an hour over Zoom. And then every month I bring in an industry VIP. You can also check out my book, 10,000 Knows: How to Overcome Rejection on the Way to Your Yes. If you're interested in private coaching, whether in person 
person or over Zoom, I do that as well. For all this stuff, email info at 10,000nos.com. In the subject line, tell us what you want. We do our Let's Shoot the Rehearsal weekend intensive on-camera retreats in New York City and elsewhere throughout the year, every couple of months. So check that out. You can also email us to join the newsletter. I will not flood your inbox. It'll only come once a week. Love to have you in our circle. Thank you for listening. If you really dig it, tell your friends, put it on social media. If you feel like it deserves a five-star review over at Apple Podcasts, please give us one there. Once again, thank you, and we'll see you next week.